have a question and answer. And particularly the last few weeks, as we've had Sunday morning opportunity to go through the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I have had just numerous questions from people regarding the issue of tongues and prophecy and spiritual gifts and just felt like there might be more. So we wanted to just take some moment, uh, some moments tonight to allow for that and maybe be able to all grow together as we think through some of these issues, other issues that might come up. And of course, there was opportunity to drop questions in the basket outside. Uh, if you had any that you wanted to maybe not own up for, those are always the most controversial that go into that basket, such as this one. What are the chances of the University of Alabama making the Sugar Bowl? No name, uh, obviously. No one wanted to stand up for that. Uh, find me offline. I will be glad to spend hour upon hour discussing that with you. A number of uh, really good questions here, and um, I thought we could maybe begin with some of the shorter ones and then maybe move through and perhaps have a few moments to take some from the floor. Uh, one question comes in, does First Timothy, oh, excuse me, does Titus 1.6 specify a disqualification of eldership for men who are fathers of unbelieving children? That's a um, common question. If you are familiar with, first, uh, with Titus chapter 1, you know that it is one of those two passages in the New Testament give qualifications for for leaders and for elders in the church. And one of them, in verse 6, is that he has to have children who are believers or someone translated as faithful. Uh, it's a form of the word uh, pistis, which is the word for believing or faith, uh, um, belief or faith or faithfulness in the New Testament. And it's translated both ways uh, in different passages. In one place... It talks about Epaphroditus, who was a faithful man. In other places, it talks about those who are believers or have it, those who have faith. And uh, as with any lexical or, or uh, uh, definition of a word, you always pay closer attention to the near context when it comes to understanding a word. And so what we, what we are really compelled to do is to look into the passage of Titus to see First of all, is there anything in the passage that would indicate what the writer has in mind, what Paul has in mind whenever he says that an elder must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, and his children must be pistis is the word. Well, he goes on in the remaining part of that verse and says, or further defines that by saying that they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So it's helpful for us there in that context because you would imagine that if his idea of a qualified elder was simply a child who believes, it would require no further qualification. It's stated plainly enough. But if the, if for the particular nuance of this word in this context had not to do with saving faith, but rather had to do with faithfulness, then, um, then it would require further qualification, which is exactly what he gives us there. He qualifies it uh, by the fact that they needed to be in submission, by the fact that they couldn't live debauched lives. And there's a couple of things that I think confirm that, um, 
that understanding, first of all, would be just the parallel passage over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, which says there that uh, elder, uh, among other things, must have children, or he must manage his own household, it says in verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the clear emphasis there is put on the management of his children and making sure that they are submissive. And if you just uh, coordinate those two passages together, you see the, the emphasis is always on the faithfulness of the parent, the faithfulness of the man who's being considered as, a, as, an, as, as an elder. You also sort of reflect on this from a theological standpoint, and you recognize that um, you know, we ultimately do not control who believes or don't believe. We recognize that there have been some very faithful preachers through the years who've preached the gospel to some, who in turn to that preaching have turned away in hardness of heart. Most notably, our Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many turned away from his preaching, his life, the perfection of everything that he was in hardness of heart and disbelief. And yet it wasn't a reflection upon the character of Christ. It was simply a reflection of the hardness of their own heart. And so we don't necessarily think that the hardness of heart in a, even a child to not believe the gospel is a direct reflection on the quality and character of a man that might serve as an elder. But what is a reflection is the overall demeanor, the overall character and conduct of his children. Because even an unbeliever who has been properly cared for, properly instructed, properly taught on the consequences of choices in life, the consequences of pathways they may go down, would develop a healthy fear of certain sinful behavior, a healthy fear of certain associations, and consequently would gravitate away from those. This is essentially what 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, that whenever you have a, an unbelieving spouse and you are a believing spouse, that there's still opportunity in that environment, it says, to sanctify your children. Basically meaning you can have a godly influence on your children. While at the same time, that same passage says, how do you, oh man or woman, how do you know that you would possibly bring your spouse to saving faith? The implication is you don't. Simply the godliness of your conduct and your character cannot guarantee the, 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 the saving faith in your beloved spouse, but it can guarantee the sanctifying influence on your children. And so I think you have the in-home dynamics spelled out in that passage. And all of that kind of comes back to Titus then. And so we understand from a contextual standpoint, we understand from a, from a you might say, a, a broader context of parallel passages. We understand from a systematic theology standpoint. And then I always have to throw in the practical. You know, if you choose to want to say that that passage is teaching that children ought to be believing, you run into the practical dilemma of when. And somebody's got to answer, when do they have to believe? Are you allowed to be a, a pastor or a teacher before they believe? Are you allowed to be a pastor or a teacher before you have children? And if you have children, do you have to wait for them to believe? 
And uh, if you have to wait for them to believe, at what age do they need to believe? And uh, who is to say when that age is? Some may say 12, some may say 13, some may say 18, some may say whenever. In other words, in a very practical sense, you throw open very arbitrary doors um, to, to that issue, which I think can't simply create complexity. I think the clear uh, um, thrust of the passage is on the quality of leadership in the man. Is he able, even with an unbelieving child, to be able to shepherd and guide them through the consequences of life, to be able to understand the implications of their behavior and keep them in control? Uh, you know, that being said, you know, it's possible then that you might have an elder who has unbelieving children. You may have an elder who has even grown and adult unbelieving children. That is to say, they don't walk with the Lord, they don't attend church. And yet, potentially, you could have a situation where you have such a man and those unbelieving children hold their father in high esteem because they have seen behind closed doors the quality of his life, the quality of his character. They know that he's not a duplicitous person. They know that he's not a man of, of, um, of uh, hypocrisy. They know the quality of his character, and so they're going to respect him, they're going to esteem him, even if they don't necessarily follow along in his belief. And I think at the end of the day, that's really what you're looking for. That's really what you're looking for. Well, we don't always know in God's design what that um, great plan is for the children even of believing and, and uh, leadership, uh, parents who are in leadership, but we trust that when we follow in his way, we will have a sanctifying influence on them. So I hope that's helpful. I don't know if it answered all the implications of that question, but um, you can ask me afterward if you have more questions. There's a second one. In light of Matthew 5, 33 through 37, what is the proper view of vows made before God by a young believer when responding emotionally to a situation? I think you can uh, go over there. I'll read that so we can all understand what we're talking about. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, you shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So he's addressing the issue here of oaths and telling us that we shouldn't um, engage in them. You have to understand that there is a little bit of historical cultural background behind this. He names specifically three kinds of oaths because these were common in Jewish uh, life in these days to swear, uh, first of all, by heaven, uh, second of all, by earth, and then thirdly, by Jerusalem. Uh, this was um, a way that, that uh, uh, Jews would sometimes distinguish the veracity of their intent 
whenever they made some sort of commitment. And Jesus is simply confronting them as if somehow a vow should make a difference in the intent of your heart to do something. And he says here, look, that is unnecessary. You shouldn't have to take vows. You ought to have the kind of life that is so upstanding that simply saying yes or no is sufficient. Now, you have to understand a couple of things. First of all, that um, he is addressing here in hyperbolic language issues of life. That is to say, if you go through uh, this whole chapter, particularly chapter 5 in Matthew, you're dealing with a number of absolutes which we understand are not always absolute. Uh, you know, you could begin just with example of divorce. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you might gather from that that a divorce is allowable perhaps in the context of adultery, but not allowable in any other context. And yet, when you come over to 1 Corinthians 7, it appears that the Bible opens up a second consequence. That is, the issue of abandonment. But he states it in very absolute tones there. I mean, there are even stronger ones, right? He says, if someone uh, uh, wants you to go with them uh, a mile, you should go with him too. If someone asks for a cloak or for your tunic, you should give him your cloak as well. Or maybe most extreme that if your right eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out and throw it away from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off and throw it away. So you have to understand that this entire context is being stated in absolute terms, in hyperbolic language, even to the extent that he's recommending amputating parts of your body. And hyperbole is used for the sake of making an emphatic point but it doesn't necessarily mean that it ought to be taken as an absolute in every situation. That's why we as Christians do not um, forbid people or we don't uh, preclude people from taking oaths or making vows in appropriate situations. We rejoice. In fact, we lead people to take vows in wedding ceremonies. Here... At Faith Community Church, when people join a church, we stand up and we have a sort of a vow ceremony where people say, you know, I'm going to commit to, to do six things that uh, the church expects of every believer and we commit to pray for them, minister to them. When you go into a court of law, you take an oath and you do that in submission to the government and in accordance with the laws of the state and everything and we don't look at that as sinful. What is really sinful is whenever you are trying to with false intent, hide something. And you're doing it with vows. And that's really the thrust of what Jesus is saying here. You shouldn't need that. In the normal course of conversation, you shouldn't ever need that. You ought to have the kind of character, weight of character, that when you say yes, it means yes. People know it means yes. When you say no, it means no. Now, that being said, that sometimes you will make commitments that are spoken with clear intent or, uh, you know, without malice, we could at least say, that you're not able to fulfill. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul himself got into this scenario. 
Um, he says in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 1, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way back to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Surely, as God is faithful, our word to you has, been, has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom you proclaim, who was proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. And this really goes to an issue where Paul had made a commitment in a letter to visit the Corinthians, which with every intent... He wanted to follow through, but he wasn't able, and so he was accused of saying yes, yes at one point, while off the side of his mouth he was saying no. And Paul just has to say, look, the intent of my heart was certainly to do this. I made a, a commitment that I wasn't able to fulfill for various reasons, but he states you should know the quality of my life based on the ministry and, my, and the integrity of my life around you. You could go even further down to verse chapter 4 when he says um, in verse uh, 2, we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the, uh, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so this has to be the context of your life. You need to commend yourself by the quality of your character and the conduct of your life so that vows are then unnecessary in the normal course of life. We um, certainly don't encourage them around our home. We don't try to uh, stack promises and pinky promises and all these other things out there. We don't try to train our kids up that way. We try to train them up just simply that you let their yes be yes and their no be no. Now, all that being said, this particular uh, person wants to know if he made a, ra- a vow uh, responding emotionally in a situation, is he bound to it? And I would say that if you've made a, a, a if you stated that you would do something, then you should, within every reasonable means of your power, seek to fulfill it. The compelling verse to me is really out of Psalm 15. This is what it states for a righteous man. It says in verse 4 that a righteous person, his eyes of a vile person, in, in his eyes a vile person's despise. He honors those who fears the Lord. And then it says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he has such a high regard for his own personal word and integrity that if he states he will do something, he does it. Very simple. And... You may fudge on this once or twice, but if you do this repeatedly, it will reflect poorly on your character in time, and you will become characterized and known as someone who doesn't follow through on your vows and commitments. Now, obviously, if you vow to do something sinful, then you understand 
that you should immediately confess and repent. You should confess to the Lord and you ought to confess to the person that you made that vow to. If you vowed something that you're incapable of fulfilling, then you need to probably confess and repent as well to that person. But apart from maybe a few select situations, if you're simply committed to something that's now going to be painful to follow through on, then I believe as a matter of integrity, you ought to find a way to navigate through that unless perhaps the particular person you can talk to and um, come to an understanding where maybe they didn't uh, have that expectation of you, which could be the case. But I feel like we're in a day where people don't take their word very seriously. We're in a day where people are very lax about breaking contracts, very lax about signing their name to all kinds of things and not following through, very lax about just saying, I'll do something, and then making excuses when they haven't. And I really think there is a a call, there needs to be a call, especially to believers, back to the standard of Matthew chapter 5. Back to the standard of letting your word be your word. And if it takes a couple of painful lessons in our lives to bring that about, that may be, in the long run, a good thing. Uh, If we have to make some sacrifices to fulfill some vows that we might have made somewhat rashly. But I think if you look anywhere in Scripture, you get the impression that nowhere does God ever, ever take lightly when we commit to do something, whether by vow or by simple, clear statement. And so we ought, to be, we ought to be faithful as possible in fulfilling that. So I hope that clears that up. Again, if you have any more questions, you can see me afterward. What are your views on dating and courtship? Anyone want to take credit for this one? Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, Something my wife has been badgering me to really talk about for a while, so maybe she wrote it. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 uh, I can understand why this is a, a big issue because you're talking about, apart from your, um, you know, your commitment to Christ, this is, this is the, the biggest decision you'll make in your life, uh, who you're going to marry. And so there's obviously a lot of weight on the situation of courtship and dating. At the same time, we have to recognize that it is uh, virtually unaddressed in Scripture. Uh, at the best that you can say is that there are a few narrative passages which describe practices in various scenarios, but which are not necessarily prescriptive. And if you begin to take something that's simply descriptive, and try to make it prescriptive, then you have to choose now between which descriptive passage you want to you wanna deal with. I mean, you want to deal with Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, which speaks about a betrothal, sort of a formal betrothal that was active during Jerusalem, or do you want to talk about Ruth, who presented herself uninvited in the bedchamber of a man she wanted to marry, and pulled the covers off in an explicit sort of way that would have been maybe frowned upon in in cordial society. I mean, which one are you going to choose? Because both of them are descriptive. 
Both of them will probably get you a man in one way or the other. <laughs> but we're just talking about what's wisest, right? So we have to understand the Bible doesn't exactly tell us how this goes about. So we have to work from principles that are clearly laid out. And I think when you look into the scripture, there are some principles, at least in terms of, of um, uh, you know, what, what we ought to be. I'm probably going to miss some things to, to try to talk about this. I mean, but I think you can begin in 1 Corinthians 7 where it talks about uh, singleness and divorce. And one of the first things that it says there is that, you know, if uh, you are single, you ought to give thanks for it because it comes with grand opportunities to serve the Lord. But many people who are single, Paul says, cannot have self-control and they burn with passion. And so, therefore... It's better to marry than to burn. In other words, we shouldn't be placing ourselves in extended periods of time of sexual temptation so that we are constantly battling with this issue and therefore possibly subject to terrible failure. But even beyond that, uh, rendering ourselves much less useful to the Lord because we're constantly dealing with this issue in our life of temptation. So 1 Corinthians would encourage you, first of all, that you ought to be seeking out marriage if that's a desire that you have and you shouldn't be prolonging it. I think some of the issues in our current society, or let me say it another way, one of the reasons why this debate has never occurred in the history of the church because no one has ever waited as long as we do to get married. We want our kids to, first of all, graduate high school at the age of 18. We want our kids to then go off and get a full degree and sometimes a master's degree. And then beyond that, we want them to have a down payment saved up for a house, a car that's paid for, and a six-figure salary before they can go out with my daughter. I mean, this has never happened in the history of the church. And so it throws us into debates which have never occurred in the history of the church. Because no one's waited this long to get married in the history of the church. So we need to realize, we need to take stock of what we're sometimes placing uh, children under whenever we put on them some onerous standards of uh, courtship and dating that we ourselves didn't even submit to. Which I think threatens to violate Matthew 7 when it talks about measuring others with the standard with which you too want to be measured. You just have to realize that you probably would not give your daughter to you. Right? Let's be honest. I mean, most of us weren't where we wish we were at the age when we were married. So you just have to come back, I think, with some realistic expectations, first of all, of where we are in society, some realistic expectations of where young men are. And now I think you back up and you begin to ask yourself at that point, what are the qualities that ought to be demonstrated in a future husband uh, of a bride? And I, I, for my family and for my children, we sort of boil it down to three, which I think can be applied within a relationship before marriage uh, and then obviously progress on into relationship. And you can write these down. I mean, don't publish them. I have a copyright on them, but I'm just joking. 
Um, first of all, you ought to have a man who's going to guard the character or, or uh, guard the, the uh, let me say, the purity of a woman. I mean, this is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right? Um, this is the will of God, he says, in very plain terms. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse... Uh, is it in verse 1? Uh, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. And so I think at the very least you ought to, you ought to understand that whenever you are entering into a relationship, you have a primary duty to guard the purity obviously of one another, but I put the responsibility on a young man to do that. And so if whatever your uh, process is of getting to know a young lady, whatever your process is, you should never put her or yourself in a situation where you would be tempted to sexual immorality. You should never put yourself in a situation where you or she would be tempted to sexual immorality, and you wouldn't be properly guarding her purity. That's going to rule out most of probably what goes on in the modern dating scene. Uh, the sort of exclusive, alone, late night, or whatever it might be situations. So that's the first thing. I mean, you want to, you want to approach the situation with a commitment to guard the purity of a young lady. Secondly, you want to guard her reputation. You want to guard her reputation. That is to say, you don't want to put her in a position where even if she may be innocent in a matter, the appearance could be perceived in such a negative way that would hurt her reputation. And that, that's expansive. I mean, obviously it deals with sexual temptation uh, where you wouldn't even want to put a, a young lady in a position where without possible witnesses uh, to your conduct, accusations could be made. But I think even maybe on a more practical point, um, you don't want to, um, I, I guess you could say, um, cause her to, to have to make herself vulnerable more than you do, or to expose herself to ridicule more than you do, or to take upon herself shame before you do. That is to say that, that you want to approach this situation always understanding that if the relationship has to come to an end, the full brunt and weight of the fault probably ought to be bear, borne by you because you're committed to guarding the reputation of this young lady. And that really kind of just goes with the, the basic... Uh, um, uh, responsibility of a husband when he's supposed to treat his wife as a weaker vessel. You need to, as a young man, be taking ownership of the responsibility that it's on you to bear the weight and responsibility of your relationship and to bear the load, to bear 
the shame, to bear the ridicule, to bear the persecution, wherever it might be, to the best of your ability. So whenever you're approaching a, a relationship, you first of all want to guard the young lady's purity. You want to guard, secondly, her reputation. Um, you don't want to get too far down the road when you yourself know that you're not that committed and then you are looking for a way to get out. Secondly, you don't want to constantly be um, sort of uh, fishing for statements of her interests before you're able to clearly state your own. One of the things my wife has told others that she really appreciated is, you know, when we first met, I mean, I told her, I want to marry you. I mean, what was third day? I can't remember, but it was pretty, it was known pretty clear exactly where I stood. And yet so many guys are so hesitant to express their true intent so clearly because they don't want to be left looking silly if they're rejected. You have to understand that's your role. That's your role. And so you have to understand that it's your job to lead out, to state clearly what your intentions are all along the way, even before uh, whatever the young lady is, whatever, whoever she is, before she's necessarily forced to reveal that. And again, that just, I think, arises out of second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, where you're treating her gently as a weaker vessel. That is to say, we don't want to get into a big exegesis of that, but basically you're, you're handling this precious thing with care. The word is, the word is a word for vase. It, you, it's like you're dealing with something and you're so concerned that anything might brush against it or touch it lest some way it be damaged. And that is the vision that Peter gives of the way a husband cares for, a, for his wife. You're protecting in all corners this precious vessel. And then thirdly, you want to guard her heart. You want to guard her heart. So you want to guard her purity. You want to guard her reputation. And thirdly, you want to guard her heart. And that is to say, you don't want to generate emotions within her that you're not, first of all, willing or, second of all, able to fulfill or to match. You don't want to generate emotions within her that you're not willing or able to, to, to follow through on. That is to say, you don't want to um, lead her on. You don't want to see her stirred with emotion um, before you yourself are even sure about this relationship. Before you know for certain that this is something you want to pursue. And then secondly, you don't want to generate the kind of emotion by spending inordinate amounts of time together, one-on-one, -on -one, and doing things in a joint and exclusive way when you're 13, because you can't marry anytime soon, most likely, right? So, so I mean, you don't want to be headed down a route where you're stirring all kinds of emotions that are supposed to be involved with, with people who are approaching their wedding day, when your wedding day might be seven years down the road. And that wouldn't be guarding the heart of a young lady. So what you want to do is if you're involved with someone you wouldn't want to press that issue or generate those kinds of emotions until you are ready to match those emotions with the proper kind of action. I think that, again, is just an extension of protecting and guarding uh, a young lady as a gentle, uh, as, a, as a, uh, a weaker vessel there. And so I think if, 
you know, you don't have to put a definition over, you know, how many hours it's going to be or what kind of circumstances necessarily. I think if you lay out those three principles, in my mind, they navigate you through the process of getting to know someone. Otherwise, if you go into some sort of rigid courtship model where the only time that you can see one another is if you're sitting on the sofa facing your parents, you know, let's face it. I mean, you're really not going to get to know one another, right? I mean, talk to people who've been in that situation, honestly. If you, I mean, if, you're, if every scenario involves another person, just practically speaking, you're not going to have the kind of depth of conversation that you would have in a one-on-one scenario. Uh, you're not going to have maybe even the kind of spontaneity to take advantage of situations to get to know one another. But in general, it's much wiser to approach a person with care, guarding their reputation and their emotions in more corporate and group settings so that you don't rush ahead in the the nature of this relationship and cause unnecessary damage to a young lady's reputation or her heart because you yourself weren't in a place spiritually, you weren't in a place maturity-wise, you weren't in a place even age-wise where you're able to follow through on that. So, I mean, it's not... uh, uh, certainly airtight, but that's the way that, uh, that we sort of begin to talk to our kids about that issue at this stage of their life. Um, we'll do one more. We have three here, so. Um, one of them, what happened to Old Testament saints? Um, what happened to Old Testament saints? So the same thing that happened to New Testament saints, basically. Old Testament saints, um, whenever they die, their bodies, just like our bodies, decay and go away. Their spirits go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Their spirits go into the presence of God. And um, uh, a couple of saints, with the exception of a couple of saints who are bodily there, uh, Enoch being one of them, Elijah being the other, all the rest of the saints are spiritually with the Lord somehow. Clear statement of that in the New Testament, of course, is Paul, when he says in one place, Philippians chapter one, that you know he, he's he's torn between two scenarios: to remain and be together with the church, or to depart and be together with the Lord. He clearly understood that for him to die was to be with the Lord. To be in a disembodied state before the Lord while he awaited his resurrected body. Um, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he clearly talks about a disembodied state where he's in the presence of the Lord. And there's never any indication that things in the Old Testament were any different for believers. They had the expectation that the, to, for them to die was to be with the Lord. Um, there have been some people who've suggested otherwise uh, based on a couple of faulty interpretations. First of all, just simply faulty understanding of the Old Testament terminology. Uh, they've taken the Old Testament word, he, uh, Old Testament word Sheol and embedded it with all kinds of false notions that largely arise from the ancient, the surrounding ancient Near East, where this was some sort of uh, 
uh, Hades kind of environment from uh, from uh, Mesopotamia or from from Greek philosophy, where you went into a sort of holding pen, where you were neither suffering nor delighted, and um, they've taken that because the word Sheol can have in some context, the connotation of just the ground, the earth, the, 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 the grave. And so it doesn't speak to necessarily the experience of the person. In some con- context, though, it, it very clearly refers to their, their existence beyond the grave. Secondly, people have simply um, you know, uh, mis- uh, misinterpreted um, some statements in, in the Scripture that speak about the Old Testament saints, um, you know, being, uh, I'm sorry, the, the misinterpret, I should say, the, the, the passages about the departed spirits in First Peter chapter 4, where, you know, Jesus went and preached to departed spirits, and some people have just simply misinterpreted that to be that place where people were held until they heard from Christ that they could be released and then go to be with him. Well, sound exegesis of 1 Peter and sound exegesis, by the way, of Ephesians 4, neither of them point in that direction. Those are not passages talking about Old Testament saints in, um, in 1 Peter. They're talking about rebellious demons or in Jude as well. So Old Testament saints, just like New Testament saints, just go to be with the Lord. You see sort of evidence of that maybe on the Mount of Transfiguration whenever... Jesus meets together with Elijah and, uh, and Moses there on the mountain and converses with them, uh, probably in a familial sense because he has been spending uh, time with them since their departure. They too, like departed saints, are awaiting their resurrected bodies which will take place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. They're awaiting their resurrected bodies, which will take place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And they will reign on the earth with Christ for a thousand years. That's their destiny. That's our destiny. It's the destiny of believers, both Old and New Testament, to be the people of God in the kingdom. So I, uh, I, I don't know what the specific, uh, specifics are of that question again. I just invite you to ask me afterward. I'll take one more here. The Seventh-day Adventists, are they a cult? Um, I don't think they're a cult. Uh, Typically, a cult uh, is defined in two primary ways. They have a separate source of revelation. That is to say, they have an additional book beyond the Bible... So for the Mormons, it might be the Book of Mormons. For the Christian scientists, it might be the key to understanding the Scriptures. But they have to have some separate document that then becomes the authoritative source for interpreting the Bible. For the Catholic Church, it is the magisterium. All of the accumulated uh, documents of the Church, which then become the authoritative spoke, uh, spokesperson on the Scripture. Uh, throughout the history of the church. So in all these situations, you have an additional sort of document. Um, And then secondly, you have an additional, a a separate way of salvation. You have some sort of emphasis on 
on the, the, the works that have to be performed. And uh, to tell you the truth, I, I don't know all of the intricacies of the Seventh-day Adventist church. My understanding is that there are multiple branches of it. Uh, within some of those branches, there is an emphasis on baptismal regeneration. That is to say, they would emphasize that you cannot be saved without an act of baptism. And that is, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, anathema. That is absolutely accursed because it's adding to the work of Christ. And he says if you add one thing to the work of Christ, you take away everything of Christ. So, so yes, certainly if you're in one of those streams which are emphasizing baptismal regeneration, you might begin to think of them as a cult. But at the same time, I, at least as I understand it, there are a number of Seventh-day Adventists which don't hold to a baptismal regeneration but simply have a distorted view of the Old Testament law. They emphasize an exaggerated continuity of the Old Testament law so that the, the church has completely replaced Israel as the people of God and as the people of God, as the new Israel... We are still bound under this Old Testament law to the extent that we are even bound to a Saturday worship, a Saturday Sabbath, so that they worship on Saturdays. That is, um, that is an errant view of the law, but, you know, honestly, they wouldn't be the only ones who have that. It's just a more exaggerated distortion. Um, Unfortunately, I wish I, I knew more about Seventh-day Adventists to give you a better answer, but I would just tell you, look at that key issue, the issue of their mode of salvation. Do they require a, a work? And secondly, is there an additional scripture? Is there an additional book that has to be used to understand comment on the scripture? Um, if you're dealing with a Seventh-day Adventist, just talk to them about grace. Talk to them about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Tell them what you understand from the scripture. Exalt the, the, the majesty of God's goodness and, and uh, clearly point to the weakness of our flesh. Preach the gospel to them. If they're a true believer, they're going to grow in the Lord. If they need to one day separate from a church that doesn't teach sound doctrine, that's going to happen. But um, sometimes dealing with those situations in a more subtle way, just through the, the clear doctrines of grace, uh, might be more effective than maybe even labeling uh, their church a cult could be a relationship killer right off the start all right well thank you for your time and i hope the questions and answers were helpful and we'll try to do this again in a few months as always if you have questions we are always delighted to take them by email any of our pastors and elders just rejoice to be able to answer those um, as best we can so let's stand together we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer Father, we are grateful and so thankful that um, we don't need to be lost, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Every answer is to be found in your all-sufficient word. Make us students of it. Give us your spirit so that we can better understand it. Uh, surround us with sound and godly-minded teachers who can guide our way through it. And Lord, I pray that we as a people would always be brought up in it, growing in the discernment 
the knowledge of, of your will, what is good and perfect and acceptable. May you do that, Lord, because we want to honor and glorify your name in everything we do. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.